Welcome to this Legal Talk Network podcast as Lex Mundi presents In-House Legal, the show about everything in-house. Hot topics, legal trends, everything important to corporate counsel. Welcome as Lex Mundi presents In-House Legal. I'm your host, Tim Corcoran with Hubbard One, a division of Thomson Reuters. At Hubbard One, we create powerful software and solutions that work together to empower law firms to make the most of their information and gain a competitive advantage over their rivals. As an expert in law firms and corporate counsel relationships, I'm very pleased to partner with Lex Mundi and host In-House Legal on the Legal Talk Network. Each month, Lex Mundi presents In-House Legal, focusing in on you and what's important to you as in-house counsel. We take you inside the corporate legal department. Today's topic is offshore outsourcing of document reviews. With us today is Cindy Courtney with Day Pitney, Lex Mundi's member firm for New Jersey. Cindy is a member of the Commercial Litigation Department practicing as Electronic Discovery Counsel to the firm. She has managed large, multifaceted document collections involving the selection and oversight of vendors. Cindy provides electronic discovery advice and support on existing litigation matters and advises clients regarding the creation of corporate document retention programs. Cindy is a frequent speaker at eDiscovery conferences and has written a number of articles in this area. Welcome, Cindy. Thanks, Tim. Glad to be here. Also joining us today is Kate Bertini, Assistant General Counsel at United Technologies Corporation in Hartford, Connecticut. United Technologies Corporation provides high technology products and services to the global aerospace and building industries. Kate is responsible for developing and leading UTC's eDiscovery Center that provides centralized eDiscovery support and services, as well as advice and counseling to UTC and its business units. In addition, Kate chairs UTC's litigation's best practices team and coordinates litigation reporting requirements. Thanks for joining us, Kate. Thanks, Tim. Yeah, I'm happy to be here and be part of this conversation. So today we're talking about the nuances of e-discovery and what in-house counsel should know regarding offshore outsourcing of document reviews. Clients recognize that significant cost savings can be realized by outsourcing this activity. And a recent development is the use of offshore companies employing local attorneys to perform these reviews in order to reduce costs. So Kate, I'm interested in the in-house view and what led you and your department to consider using offshore reviewers. Sure. Tim, this is really an offshoot of work that we were already doing offshore. Uh, we had an, an established relationship with Pangea 3 for other work, such as contract review. So for our company, to manage e-discovery across a widely decentralized organization, it really made perfect sense for us to expand that existing relationship. So when we created our e-discovery process, we brought in all of our key litigation firms along with Pangea 3 and other e-discovery providers to map out the process that we thought was defensible, repeatable, sustainable, efficient, and cost-effective. Our strategy was to unbundle the services to get the best value. In other words, to give the work to the lowest cost provider without compromising quality and to require our firms and service providers to work together. And frankly, when we were building our program, others were already doing outsourced offshore review, so we didn't feel as though we were jumping off a cliff. Our presumption, for a number of reasons, therefore, is that at least the first-pass review will be conducted offshore in the absence of any export control issues, which I'll speak to in a minute, and that if a review cannot be conducted offshore, it should be outsourced onshore. Our firm belief is that firms, law firms, are not the best first reviewer in almost all of our cases. Um, A key factor that drove our decision was potential cost savings. When the economy tanked, we were under extreme pressure within our organization, along with everyone else, to minimize costs. 
in our opinion, letting a law firm perform a document review is like giving them a license to print money. In these economic times, that simply was not acceptable to our organization. So we have realized significant cost savings by not having document reviews performed by law firms, saving about 80% of what we would have otherwise spent for the review. Another factor for us was that the ABA had already signed off on this kind of work. Uh, We would, of course, not be doing outsource reviews if it were unethical or created ethical dilemmas for our firms. For example, in the ABA formal opinion 08-451, which came out in August of 08, it approved legal outsourcing if certain requirements were met, namely rigorous supervision by the firm, the preservation of client confidences, the avoidance of conflicts of interest, of course, appropriate billing, and advanced client consent. So with that in place, we felt comfortable going down this path. Um, And as I mentioned at the beginning, another potential concern for UTC was the management of export-controlled data. Uh, Many of UTC's business units, particularly the aerospace companies, have data and technical information that is subject to ITAR regulations that preclude disclosure of that data to non-U.S. persons. If a case involves discovery that is subject to export control, then the review must be performed by U.S. persons as defined by the regulation. Non-U.S. citizens are a non-starter in these cases. Therefore, we must carefully consider at the beginning of a matter whether export control comes into play before deciding whether to to conduct an offshore review. There are, are many onshore reviewers who are very capable and still much less expensive than a firm. And I will note that Pangea 3 recently opened a shop in Dallas to perform onshore review, which from our perspective solves the issue of export compliance. Well, it sounds like you've given this a great deal of thought. Cindy, as a lawyer in an outside firm, can you tell us what Kate's presumption means for the practice of law and for the traditional role of large document reviews performed by law firm associates? Thank you. Um, I think that Kate has outlined a, a distinct and new paradigm here. And I I really have um, three observations or principles that I think emerge from or that go along with that paradigm. First, the practice of law is going to change dramatically. Generations of associates, including myself, have come of age working extensively on large document reviews. This This goes back decades. Uh, before e-discovery and and back into the the dark ages of paper. Now, a significant amount of this work is simply not going to be performed by associates any longer. And there are upsides and downsides to this development. Um, On the upside of the development, uh, you've heard from Kate that simple document reviews, first, first pass document reviews, will become much less expensive for the client. And that, of course, is is one of the key things that's driving this development. On the downside, of course, from the firm's perspective, large document reviews had resulted in considerable revenue for law firms, and that, as we see, is going to change. I'm not sure if I agree with the statement that it was a license to print money, but it it was certainly an an opportunity to realize significant revenues, and, and that's no longer going to be the case. An upside, I think, that we have to acknowledge is that document reviews, let's face it, can be dull work, and associates may secretly in some ways welcome outsourced reviews for that reason. 
And I think that in and of itself is a component of the point that Kate made about how first reviews are never best done by firms. I think that the, the interest level is a part of this picture. Another downside that I see, and this, this actually takes issue uh, with something Kate mentioned a minute ago, is that the associates who performed the document reviews of necessity gained a knowledge base about the documents that would assist the trial team in preparing the claims and defenses. And I think with outsourced reviews, that knowledge base is, if not lost, it's diminished. The second principle that emerges is that outside counsel must exercise its ethical responsibility for the document production. Kate referred to the ABA opinion and the need for rigorous supervision. Mid-level and upper-level associates, therefore, have to be uh, strong managers. They have to learn how to manage, and I think that this is an important theme for this podcast. What type of management and supervision are necessary, then, to assure that the firm is meeting its ethical obligation? I think it's a combination of training the reviewers, familiarizing them with the case, making sure they understand what a privileged document is, creating a mechanism for the reviewers to escalate and resolve issues, and creating a feedback loop, all of which you'll hear more about in a minute. The third principle that I would touch on here is that firms that embrace this new paradigm and are committed to making it work for the client are the firms that are going to succeed. I think this is an opportunity for law firms, and what happens in this area is really going to set the stage for law practice over the next several decades. Well, certainly change is afoot, no question about that. And of course, the issue is more nuanced than uh, it may appear on the surface. So what are some considerations for deciding whether to use offshore contract attorneys as opposed to onshore, Kate? Sure, Tim. Uh, of course, you know, we, we favor offshore review over onshore review because even though the biggest cost differential is between outsourced offshore review and law firm review, there's still an appreciable diff- cost differential between offshore and onshore. So cost does come into play and offshore is still the least expensive. So from our perspective, you know, from a cost perspective, if we can go there, we will. Um, However, while cost is an issue, the most critical factor for UTC in deciding whether to perform onshore or offshore relates to export control, which I mentioned briefly before. If there are any production materials, documents, ESI, anything that is potentially subject to export control regulations, specifically ITAR, then we cannot chance an offshore review. The review simply must be conducted onshore to ensure that U.S. persons are performing the review and that there is no disclosure of export-controlled material to non-U.S. persons, which, of course, would violate export regulations. Other than that, though, we generally have not found that other issues weigh heavily on this decision, offshore versus onshore review. And we have had one case that I can think of where the case, the issues were simply too complex, the ESI was too voluminous, and the timeframes were too short to facilitate an offshore review. But apart from that one case, we have not come across any others that have presented that level of complexity or volume of ESI or short deadlines that would preclude offshore review. And frankly, when we started this whole process, um, 
one thing that came into play for us uh, as to as between offshore or onshore, was the sophistication of of the law firms we were dealing with. The firms that understand the new paradigm, understand how e-discovery works, and and also primarily that we are the client, um, have been really easy to work with, and they uh, go out uh, of their way to to make it work, and have we've had a really smooth transition to outsourced uh, offshore review. Uh, I I have had a few instances where firms have raised issues, kind of pushing back a little bit with such things as, well, we've never produced a document that hasn't been reviewed by one of our our lawyers. Those days are gone. They're over. Um, the, The model has shifted. So ultimately, we were successful in convincing that firm that this made sense, but it wasn't with without some pushback by the firm. Uh, another issue we've run into is what do we what do we tell our insurance carriers, uh, the malpractice carriers for for the firm? Um, you know, I, I think the firm has to make sure, as Cindy mentioned, that they are uh, vigorously supervising the review and meeting their ethical obligations. Um, and wh- when they're doing that, you know, really this is what the client wants and the train has left the station and for, for from our perspective if you want to do the UTC work this is the way we want the work done well excellent well it sounds like there are still a number of factors to consider to ensure high quality during these reviews and we'll get into that in just a moment but first we're going to take a quick break stay tuned for more about offshore document reviews In-house legal from Lex Mundi takes you inside the corporate legal department. Get the inside story on the latest issues, legal trends, and more. Where do you turn when you face legal issues halfway around the world? Lex Mundi, the world's leading association of independent law firms. Lex Mundi's worldwide network of 160 premier law firms in more than 100 countries provides the local market knowledge and on-the-ground experience you can trust as your business and legal needs transcend borders. Regionally, nationally, and around the world, Lex Mundi offers unlimited solutions to help you meet the challenges of doing business globally. To locate a Lex Mundi member firm, visit www.lexmundi.com. That's L-E-X-M-U-N-D-I dot com. Welcome back to In-House Legal, presented by Lex Mundi. I'm your host, Tim Corcoran. Today, we're exploring e-discovery, particularly offshore outsourcing of document reviews. Before the break, we were discussing some of the factors of using offshore document reviewers. Let's continue with that discussion. Cindy, you've managed large document reviews performed by offshore lawyers. I'm interested in your views regarding what you think contributes to the success of these projects. Tim, I think many things make these reviews a success, but to me, they roll up to four essential points. First, a strong training module is absolutely necessary for the success of the offshore review. And by training, I don't mean having a lawyer uh, from the outside counsel firm spend an hour free associating about the case. I generally like to prepare a tight outline that gives an overview of the case so that they can look at it in advance of the of the training meeting. Uh, it should present the objectives of the review, what the review is intended to accomplish, and also provide lists uh, and other extrinsic information where necessary, such as lists of in-house lawyers and, and certain key persons. 
Um, second, how you explain the case is very important, and I think the trick is to provide enough information so that the reviewers understand what the case is about without dragging them into the weeds in the first instance. I like to provide a summary paragraph up front that they can read that tells them what the case is about. If the case involves a particular industry or an arcane area of the law, I give that a paragraph as well. Initially, the reviewers need context. They don't need an encyclopedia. They need to know who is suing whom and why. What is the defense? Are there counterclaims? What is the procedural posture here? I think it's also helpful to know where the documents come from. Were they harvested as a result of applying search terms? And again, this is part of providing context. Third, I think one of the most critical aspects of training is to teach the reviewers how to identify documents that are subject to the attorney-client privilege and the work product doctrine. As we know, certain elements must be present to establish that a document is subject to the privilege. And so, although it's important to state what those elements are, I think that's kind of dry, uh, and I think it helps to show reviewers some sample documents that are privileged. And it also helps to show some emails or documents that might have been created by lawyers but are not privileged and explain in that context why one is privileged and the other is not. Um, ultimately, you may want to instruct offshore reviewers to take a very broad view in marking privileged documents to be careful so that a, a more senior person, uh, such as a litigator at the firm, can make the final call on those documents. And sometimes the client, uh, the client's in-house lawyer plays a role in that as well. So that, that can be a good workflow. Uh, and, and finally, on that topic, uh, the coding panel and workflow require significant attention up front to make the review successful. And when I say coding panel, I'm referring to the screen in the document review application where the reviewers mark documents as responsive or privileged or where they code issues. Sometimes you want to have them uh, have a requirement that they mark documents as one thing or the other such as you must either mark something as responsive or not responsive. And you may want to lock down the system so that they can't move on to the next document unless they have chosen one or the other of those options. Another thing you might want to do is to create certain buckets of documents, uh, such as documents marked as responsive, non-responsive, etc., and have documents that have been reviewed by the offshore reviewers automatically flow into those buckets so that the outside counsel can quickly and continuously sample to assure a high quality of work. Uh, and by the way, the project manager at the review vendor should have a chance to comment on the coding panel and the workflow. And this is what we've done in some of the cases that I've worked on with Kate's team. Generally, those individuals have a really good idea of, of what a strong workflow looks like and they can present some good options and ideas to make the review more efficient and successful. So that, that individual is your friend and your ally in this process. Excellent. Well, Kate and Cindy, what other tips or safeguards have you put into place to ensure a high quality of work on the part of the offshore contract review team? Let's turn to Kate. Okay, Tim. Just to pick up on a, uh, one comment that Cindy made, um, 
you know, we do expect everyone to work together and a lot of, uh, we have a lot of different folks supporting discovery who come to the table with a lot of great ideas. And it's just essential that those folks all work together well and everyone gets the benefit of the, the other's particular area of expertise. That really goes a long way, the collaboration and leveraging the collective uh, expertise and experience of the group. Um, I think, think the second thing um, is process uh, on both sides of it. I can say internally at UTC, we have our own program called ACE, Achieving Competitive Excellence, which is very similar to Six Sigma, and it's a set of process improvement tools and methodology that we use uh, to do our work every day. It's used in manufacturing and operations, and we use it in legal and other business uh, processes as well. But it's really important when you have uh, a complex process and a number of folks supporting the process to reduce it to writing, get it on paper. So, for example, in discovery, outsource review, we typically have a process flow chart. We have very detailed procedures, uniform templates, such as a uh, the, the instructions protocol that really standardize the process as much as possible across the board. Of course, while considering the facts and circumstances and issues of a, of a particular case, uh, the issues in a given case change from matter to matter. We know that. But the underlying process should not. And that is really critical to have that in place to make it work. Also, besides the internal process control, outsource reviewers, offshore in particular, have very well-developed um, processes to produce high-quality work. These uh, folks are process-disciplined. Uh, sometimes they uh, employ Six Sigma or, or similar methodology, and it really works. For example, Pangea 3 looks at uh, daily, if not more frequently, how the review is going, where they're having what we would call turnbacks or problems, where there's been a delay in the review or a missed call. Um, they then do analysis to figure out what caused it and then make adjustments to avoid that in, uh, subsequently in the review. So they may end up revising the protocol memo with more clear instructions for the reviewers after the law firms signed off on the clarification. And I think that, you know, the firms that are have a process mindset are the ones who will succeed in this new paradigm. If they let the process drive the review, the firm can and should have and should add value on the legal cause that go beyond the scope of the defined process. This is the high-end legal work that the firms are really good at and they generally like to do, not the rote review that can be done just as well by someone else. And I think the other thing here that comes into play as far as uh, ensuring a a successful review is oversight by the firm. Cindy talked about this. The firms should step up into the project management role. They're in charge. The review provider is working really at the firm's direction and should be given clear communications by the firm, you know, whether it's via email or an issue log or even in a call, but ultimately reduced to writing. 
so that everyone can follow it and everyone can be on the same page. Uh, some other things that come into play, the consideration should be given by the firm and the client about the level of sampling in order for the firm to meet its ethical obligations and really to be able to sign off on the review. Uh, the firm does have to have um, sufficient oversight uh, of the review, and sampling should be done on issues such as responsive versus non-responsive, on the coding calls, privileged versus non-privileged, and the goal is for the firm to have sufficient oversight and a comfort level with the review without the firm having to do more sampling than absolutely necessary. And if the sampling is adequate, and that doesn't mean necessarily statistically valid, that really should be good enough and we should be able to defend the process. The firm should not be redoing the review or reinventing the wheel in order to get to that comfort level. Uh, So sampling does come into play. And fortunately for all of us in performing discovery, we don't have to be perfect but we do have to act in good faith and be able to explain what we've done. Excellent, Kate. Let's turn to Cindy for some final thoughts. Um, My comments, Tim, really reflect different aspects of the points that Kate is making. Um, For one thing, uh, you heard her talk about process and project management. I recently read an article that talked about law firms requiring their lawyers to take project management classes to better align their their internal processes with what their clients are used to and understand. And I think this is terrific. Um, This is a great development from my perspective. Um, Another comment that I would make is it's not a cliche to say that communication is key in this this process of these reviews. At the beginning of an engagement, uh, we always have a kickoff meeting to establish in a live conversation what the workflow is going to be and other important things like time frames, how long is the, the review going to take, what is the deadline, what are the intermediate benchmarks, etc. Early on, it's a good idea to have frequent check-in meetings, and if you need them every day, you should have them every day so that issues can be escalated and resolved. Kate mentioned the issue log. I like to have an issue log that goes back and forth among outside counsel, the hosting vendor, the reviewer's project manager, and the in-house person, uh, if appropriate, all of them, and uh, the, the log records what the issue is, what action has been taken, and how the issue is resolved. And this is brings into play what Kate was talking about uh, when she talked about the turnbacks and the root cause process of identifying what what gave rise to a particular problem. After a review is underway, sometimes I see um, people getting into a situation where they're too dependent on emails. So they've had their kickoff meeting, they've gotten going on the review, the next thing you know there's, there's an issue and they're not having these meetings anymore, so they're emailing back and forth and they get to a point where they're not really understanding each other, and then it's time to say, hold on, uh, you need a live conversation and we need to schedule one again. I work with the same reviewers and coders in India that Kate works with, and sometimes uh, having a live conversation requires some planning because of the time difference, but it's in everyone's interest to make it happen because sometimes email just doesn't do the job. 
And finally, uh, outside counsel and the, the client, in-house counsel and the project managers within the client, should not hesitate to ask for reports. And, and I, I think the clients do. I'm just not sure that, that outside attorneys are accustomed to requesting these kinds of metrics that vendors can provide. And the contract review companies are highly automated, as Kate said, and very process-oriented, and they're very capable of providing all kinds of metrics. What kind of throughput are you getting? How many documents per day are the reviewers getting through? Do you need to make an adjustment and put more people on the project to meet your time frame? Develop metrics around how accurate the reviewers are, which, which you can do, and whether they are recognizing privileged documents. So the idea here is to collect these metrics, analyze them, and then improve them through the feedback loop that you've created earlier in the process. And that helps you uh, achieve a more efficient and accurate review across the board. Excellent. Well, thank you, Cindy. Thank you, Kate. It sounds like successful document review requires diligence, attention to detail, a good process, and certainly excellent communication. And these apply whether the review is conducted by a law firm embracing a new model of offshore review or project managing an offshore reviewer or by in-house counsel who is managing the reviewer directly. The dynamics certainly have changed, and today's discussion should help inform the conversation. Well, that's all the time we have today. I'd like to thank our special guests, Cindy Courtney with Dave Pitney and Kate Bertini with United Technologies Corporation. The LexMundi website is open to all of our listeners with additional information on today's topic and with literally hundreds of resources for in-house counsel. You can find LexMundi online at LexMundi.com or contact me, Tim Corcoran, at CorcoranLawBizBlog.com. Remember, you can check out all of our shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com or you can also subscribe to this program in iTunes. Thanks for listening today to In-House Legal from Lex Mundy. I'm Tim Corcoran from Thomson Reuters, and I hope to talk with you again. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to In-House Legal from Lex Mundi. Join us again next time for more hot topics for the in-house lawyer on Legal Talk Network.